You know, one thing I really love that Arthur's been doing that the dear listener is not aware of is how he's been giving us these nicknames in uh, our recording software <laughs> platform here. Sure, so, yeah. Like Big last fan. week, I was John Lithgow, and uh, you were Kevin Bacon, um, mm-hmm. Dalton. This week, I'm Ray Gun, and you are Joker. I think that's fun. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, Arthur keeps switching up on us. Uh, I was the uh, cinema genie uh, for a while there uh, after that bit got going. Oh, and I was the photo genie, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, it's, it's a fun little thing. Once I figured out I could do it, yeah, why not? Can you not do it with your own name, or do you have to be good trash media? Is that, I is think that because, the- yeah, I think because I logged in. Through your I'm, I actually logged in, yeah. I don't think I can change it. That's too bad. That's too I bad. Know. But, well, right. I mean, it reminds us that Arthur uh, is the headquarters, right? You know, in these times of plague and uh, abundant snow on the ground, it, it reminds us where our real home is. You know, that's right. <laughs> I'm in Siberia. That's where I'm at. <laughs> home is where the art is, is what I understand. And uh... oh god, all right. Well, that's all right. But we got we got a pun in during the cold open. I guess we can get started for real now. <laughs> Hello, Literally everybody, a and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor, guys. We gather around a table, and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is the George Lucas-produced and by others made uh, Red Tails. Uh, we will talk about that uh, World War II flying movie uh, here in just a little bit, uh, aviation film. Uh, but I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton, and God, do I hate aircrafts. They're so scary. Uh, well, I mean, yes, they are definitely death traps and full of terror. But that being said, uh, we are going to make sure that we're going to relieve you of some of your terror, dear listener, because you may be afraid of spoilers. And so we want to let you know that in the course of this show, even though it's an analysis show and not a review show, we will wait till the end to do the spoilers. So we will have a synopsis. We'll have thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will all be spoiler light. Then we'll move into a uh, slightly more spoiler heavy territory uh, where we expand the syllabus, which probably will involve spoilers of other movies other than Red Tails. And then finally, we get down to business. There'll be music to indicate it, and you'll know that we're in spoiler territory. So you have been warned, dear listener. Um, without with all that and no further ado, I feel like I ran through our little preamble really fast today. Uh, Arthur, are you ready with that synopsis? I've got it, baby. Let's do it, man. The story of the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II, a group of black pilots selected as part of a military study slash experiment that receives little support from Washington. The Red Tails set out to prove their worth in the skies against German pilots, but pride, arrogance, and personal demons look to ground them despite their accomplishments. Very good, very good. And those are the things that happen in this movie. Uh, It was critically mm, not Panned? Panned? I don't uh, even yeah. think panned is the right word. I think uh, critically forgotten. Yeah. I mean, it, was like, it wasn't like it was even worthy of anger, right? I'm this sure m- one of... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, this movie came out either 10 years too late or 10 years too early, it seems. Yeah. If uh, one of the characters, uh, one of the non-player characters in our uh, campaign we're playing over on Patreon were to talk about the movie, I'm sure they'd reference its mediocre uh, Rotten Tomatoes score. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for certain. There is absolutely no doubt. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. What is your reaction to watching Red Tails? Well, it's a LucasArts film, uh, and I I think it it is that, uh, for better and for worse. It it is interesting that, you know, this film gestated for so long over there. Uh, 
And it did end up being the last feature that they managed to get out before the Disney acquisition. Uh, because uh, if you don't know, listener, this this was a passion project of uh, George Lucas's for quite some time. Uh, and even though they uh, they beat him to it with the uh, the Lawrence Fishburne movie in the 90s, he, he stuck at it because I'm pretty sure he was trying to develop his version uh, when that one or he was first developing this uh, contemporarily to when that uh, other film about the Tuskegee Airmen came out. Uh, but yeah, as, as Arthur said, it, it does feel like a film out of time. Uh, one of the things I do like about it, though, is it, again, as a LucasArts film, definitely is situated in George Lucas's wheelhouse as somebody who uh grew up a big fan of classical world war ii films this definitely feels like it's being made in that in that same sort of groove um I, i've obviously referenced uh old georgie porgy quite a few times but he's only a producer on this film uh we've got uh, director anthony hemingway uh, on it in his uh, first uh, feature-length uh directorial endeavor uh directed a bunch of episodes of the wire uh which uh, shows in the casting of the film uh lo- love to see a wire alumni getting to team back up together uh he's still doing a lot of tv work and i I think he does a great job of capturing uh, that look and feel of a kind of 40s, 50s classic with, you know, modern or uh, 20, early 2010s technology. Um, that said, like, I, it sounds I, I hope it sounds like I'm praising the film because I do want to a little bit. It, but at the end of the day, it is, I would say, a gentleman's three uh, out of five. It's it's right across the plate. You know, it's not bad, uh, but it's it's also, I, I don't know, not as good as this, disor- this story deserves to be, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't think any of the performances are bad. You know, I think everybody is acquitting themselves quite well in sort of a, uh, a sort of stagey, mannered, old-fashioned performance. We obviously, I just a stacked cast uh, here. I mean, it's really incredible, uh, everybody that uh, it, they got for this uh, in terms of not only our, our kind of supporting uh, officer characters uh, like Cuba Gooding Jr. and Terrence Howard, uh, but obviously in the main cast, we've got uh, David Oyelowo uh, just... I don't know, being great, doing doing a fun job as the, the loose cannon with nothing to lose. Uh, Leslie M. Jr. shows up a little bit, as does Michael B. Jordan. Um, people you've seen, man, it, it is it is full of actors that make you go, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then even in our, our kind of a, a supporting white dudes to show that show up to either be turds or uh, I don't know, maybe uncharacteristically allies. Uh, we can argue the merits of Lee Turgeson's character, but I always love when Lee Turgeson shows up and uh, Brian Cranston being a. Uh, mean and uh, thin-lipped, as he often does, just scowling at everyone. Yeah, fine performances. I I do think some people are acquitting themselves better than others. I like Neo's performance, but he's definitely in a different movie than everybody else. <laughs> I like I like the character of Smokey a lot. I, I don't oh, yeah. want to be clear about that. I think he, he has a real guy in mind for that character. Uh, that definitely agree. feels like somebody's uh, great uncle that he knew. You know what I mean? Like That feels like a real dude, but he, it's definitely a different energy than, than we're getting from everybody else. Yes. Uh, I guess now that we're talking about the cast, I should go ahead and mention that Nate Parker's in this movie, which is a bummer. Uh, and I don't want to deal with it further than that if we don't have to. Um, I'm good. Don't know, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, listener, you may or may not be aware of the, the Nate Parker stuff. This is not where we're going to talk about it. We're only recording for an hour today. Um, I, I think I've gotten all the things I like about it out of the way. There's a lot I don't like. And unfortunately, it is mostly the plot. Uh, I don't know. All, all of the the, the uh, big set pieces look very, very cool. Uh, I, I think they're exciting. I think uh, in terms of like an action cinematography standpoint, even though the bulk of our action is, you know, uh, rendered by computers, I think the camera is always put in an interesting place uh, with it within the cockpit or, uh, you know, around the plane itself. I, I feel like we, 
the film does a good job of showing us the geography of air, which when you're operating on, you know, three axes for a uh, action set piece, that can be really difficult. You know, there, there are movies that do dogfights uh, or, you know, spaceship dogfights or whatever that don't do a great job uh, or even films that do naval battles, right? Like this, this sort of big explodey action set piece that exists on a more axes than, uh, you know, the, the standard action set piece. It's, it's difficult. And I think the film does a good job of presenting that stuff. Uh, but yeah, it just, there's some sub, sub, some subplots that really just feel like they're from different movies and I don't dislike any of the subplots per se. It just feels like the film doesn't have time to really service every character that it, it uh, brings to life, which is unfortunate because I do think all of the characters uh, that the film has are, are, are really interesting. I've, basically, I feel like we need either uh, about 15 less minutes, uh, 15 to 40 less minutes, or another 20 to 30 minutes uh, is kind of how I feel about the plot, pacing, and runtime on this one. Uh, but again, it's beautiful to look at. I mean, it really is just a gorgeous film. Uh, I, I think we can get more into the World War II-ness, the uh, uh, Jim Crow-ness of it as we get into our uh, analysis of the film because I I, I think uh, I don't know I, I don't know that that Im- impacts my review too much you know I think the film does its best to address the the issues of the time with also without making the film bleaker than it already is right because war is shitty <laughs> uh, and being at war for the United States government when you're a person of color especially in the 1940s is even shittier uh, so I, I think the film rightfully does its best to be realistic about that sort of thing, but also be a movie about that sort of thing, uh, if that assessment makes sense. Uh, that's my review. Again, Gentleman's Three. I like this movie a lot. I just, I, I wish it was better. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? Do you like and why or why not Red Tails? Um, this is a movie, man, I had high hopes for this one. I really did. I really wanted this one to be uh, the one that I could come to bat for, but I, I really can't. Uh, as Dalton alluded to, this is a tale of two movies. Uh, and I think everything that happens in the air looks great, uh, is visually interesting, is easy to track. It's a good action sequences, uh, but they're too few and far between, I think. Uh, Dalton mentions this movie needs to trim about either 15 minutes or add 20 minutes. Uh, I think it needs to trim about 15 of the subplots uh, because it feels like almost every one of the, the major supporting characters has a subplot. Uh, and... For a two-hour movie, that just does not work. And, and, and I think, you know, the the depth of material here would be better suited for a miniseries or something like that for as much as they're trying to force in. Um, because a, a lot of it either doesn't go anywhere, there's not really time to get into uh, the heart of the matters on some of these subplots. Uh, I, I like the cast a lot, though. Uh, as Dalton alluded to, I mean, it is just an all-star uh, cast of, of black actors. And a lot of really good ones. I, I do feel like a few of them are phoning it in, uh, and I think that's just because there's not really much to do, uh, not much to work with as far as material goes. Uh, it, it is really a film filled with archetypes in the worst way. Uh, everybody has a handle, and it just seems like that's what their character is, is whatever their handle is. Yeah, kind of classic war movie syndrome in that regard, right? Yeah, and I think at the worst level. Uh, it, I mean, it's just a bad script, I think, is really what it comes down to. It's ham-fisted and cheesy it feels like a 90s disney movie in all the wrong ways in that Mm. regard uh and i hate that because there's a lot of potential here this is a really fascinating story and i think it looks as good as any marvel movie that came out in this time period right 
the cinematography is gorgeous. Uh, it, it's clear. E- it's easier to follow than some of the Marvel films uh, in the action and the visuals. Yeah, you're um, almost certainly talking about a similar number of visual effect shots to whatever I think 2012. It's a that's a Winter Soldier year, maybe I don't know, or Age of Ultron. It doesn't matter though. We're talking about a lot of visual effect shots, and you like you said, they all look good and they're easy to follow. Yeah, I think that's fun. I, I like a lot. Like you said, Smokey's a lot of fun. Uh, light Lightning's a lot of fun. Uh, David Oyelowo's uh, character is is a, a good uh, bit of fun, uh, and and some of the, the you know some of the pg-13 violence that happens in, in the in some of the cockpits is, is pretty in your face and brutal and i think it works really well uh in a movie that's otherwise pretty tame in a lot of regards uh but i, I really just there's there's not a lot of here i think i can use to defend this movie um i you know it's not one i mad up watched or wasted my time with but it's it just it's it's not good is really where i'd land on this one and and that's sad uh, because I, I really do want to like this one a little more. So that's that's where I'm at. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also do not like it very much. I agree that the uh, cinematography and the effects processes that they use do capture that sort of World War II in color kind of look. In fact, I immediately left the film and uh, flipped over to Netflix and watched a couple episodes of World War II in color, uh, which is a series that's available there. And uh, which also got my son sucked into being a World War II nerd, which he's 13. It's a perfect time for that to happen. Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's what it usually does. Uh, like, does take. Finally, moral outrage. Nazis are bad, Dad. Yes, yes, they are, son. Uh, but anyway, uh, that whole thing took place. And I got to say, though, it does really does. It does achieve a similar kind of effect. Uh, it looks better. Don't get me wrong. Um, the, clearly, the quality is much more than what you see there. But that being said, uh, there is something in the in the in the tactility of the process itself that just gives you that sense of of, of the colorized World War II films, and uh, I, I think that does heighten realism, which is strange to think about that uh, anti-realism mo- movement there in a photographic recording and uh, how those particular moments themselves, uh, the the style and the aesthetics of that give us a greater sense of realism, but it does. Which is an interesting process, I think, uh, just cognitively speaking. Um, but so I like that about the movie, uh, and very little else do I like. And that the reason is, as we've already said, it, it is a bad plot. And I will say this: that what's bad about the plot, it has the uh, it has the thirteenth warrior problem, uh, which is the uh, the great uh, Beowulf adaptation from uh, Michael Crichton's Eaters of the Dead uh, with Antonio Banderas in which uh, you have all of these, uh, well, 12 other Viking warriors that are friends with Antonio Banderas as he goes through his journey, uh, and you don't really get to know or identify or even really care about any of them individually. Mm, see also the uh, the Hobbit problem, right? The ho- yeah, yeah, precisely. It's, a, it's the same kind of problem. And so, yes, I've got a character tick here, alcoholism or uh, showboaty, uh, you know, hubris, or whatever. I always am telling jokes. I go to church a lot, I guess, as a character trait. Anyway, uh, you have all those little bits and pieces, but that's all you ever have is a bit or a piece, and there's never any real connective tissue that's put together with those various characters. And uh, you simply don't believe in them as actual characters. I I did not look this up, and I, I mean, I hate to make this accusation, 
but uh, I, I tend to think it is a slightly racist sort of approach to filmmaking is that the interest of this movie is going to end up being just the simple fact that we have a black cast rather than making our characters themselves interesting. Well, it definitely has that. Again, it is a, uh, a vibe, right? And I think you articulated it fairly well that it is, it's going for a, a sort of World War II as we remember it looking backwards, uh, visually speaking. And, uh, you know, it, it's pretty weird that uh, it took this long for a big budget Red Tails uh, movie to be made, right? Uh, I think what you might have uh, been about to ask but didn't, uh, yes, the director and the writers are all uh, black Americans uh, as far as the, the production goes. I didn't look that far down in the crew. So I, I, I don't know, man. It's, it's uh, hard to excuse that then. I mean, you know, it's, like, it's, it's like, sort it of make... that Hollywood, uh, yeah. that, that racism that all Hollywood movies almost uh, implicitly have, I guess, is maybe right. what you're, what's itching at you that uh, you're, you're having a hard time putting a, a label to. Because it do, it does seem like the selling point of this movie is its blackness, and I agree that is the selling point of this movie. But it's got to do more than just meet that one point, right? And that's where it fails. It is sort of a movie that requires the uh, companion documentary uh, that comes with it. Which, uh, right. if you're watching this film on Disney Plus, uh, is packaged with that. If you're watching it on uh, HBO Max, it's not. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it, it is a great primer on, on the Tuskegee Airmen, but you're right. It does sort of Saturday morning cartoon them uh, in, a, in a way that makes you wonder uh, what the purpose of this endeavor was, right? Uh, if we're, when it, and I'm sure we'll get into this more in analysis if we're going to talk about the merits or moralities of war cinema in general, uh, regardless of whether or not we're dealing with uh, systemic and or historical racism. Right. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. We're not very warm uh, when it comes to uh, Red Tails, but uh, more will be said in just a moment because we're going to move on into our little mental exercise that we like to call Expanding the Syllabus. You're going to teach a college class in which you're using this film to say something about something. And what does that look like? And what other films and or readings will you pair this with? I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What are you going to do with Red Tails? Yeah, I, I think uh, something that always fascinates me in general is the idea of uh, history presented by film, right? And so I, I think I take an approach of like a history from below on film type of thing, uh, maybe citing stuff uh, from Zen's People's History of the United States uh, and talking about history from below in general, kind of what that means. Uh, but I, I really am fascinated by that kind of the, the conversation of historicity of film uh, and adaptation theory and where those two kind of converge and how they, you know, defer. This is a, a prime example of that, of how things get um, mythified or glossed over, blended together to tell a certain type of story. While there are, you know, obviously many threads of truth here, there's, you know, obviously so much that's obscured or left out on the cutting room floor just has to be condensed, whatever the, the reasoning may be. Uh, and, and that story is always interesting to me because we've talked many times in the past about how, many people get their history from the movies or from TV series, right? That's, that's kind of their primary text, uh, uh, unless they've paid really good attention in, in uh, a class and they've had a really good teacher. And even then things are going to get missed or obscured by the, the, the way textbooks are written and, and who's written those textbooks and things of that nature. Uh, and, and so all those conversations I think are fascinating. Uh, and, and so I've, I've put together a few films here. I, I think that kind of, uh, deal with uh you know history makers uh from minority groups 
Uh, and I would just kind of ground, I think, most of the conversations around that idea and kind of do some compare and contrast of what happened in real life versus what happens in the movie and maybe kind of trying to discuss and parse out why changes were made the way they were made, what's to be gained, what is lost from that. So this is maybe maybe you could even do something like this in a screenwriting course. I'm not sure where this would fall. Uh, and so I think I would start with Wind Talkers, uh, the, the Nicolas Cage uh, movie about the, the Navajo uh, code talkers. Um, yeah, Adam Beach is the, uh, yeah. I think, the uh, yep. the second lead in that. Yeah, yep. uh, I, I think that's where I'd start with this and just kind of talk about the, the role of uh, the Native American in, in, in the war and uh, certainly a, a very looked down upon uh, minority group um, and start there. Uh, and then I want to go with Men of Honor, uh, another Cuba Gooding Jr. role uh, where he is uh, the first African-American navels. I can't remember his his position, but uh, the, the, the character there had a, a kind of a landmark uh, positioning in the Navy. Uh, and, and look at that. Uh, I, uh, I kind of want to stay in the war genre and talk about Alan Turing. I think I don't want to look at the imitation game. Nice. Uh, and mm. from there, I want to branch out and maybe do some other stuff. So I think we do 42, the Jackie Robinson movie, uh, with, uh, Chadwick Boseman. And then I, I think finally kind of bring it home in, in a different area. And that's Cadillac records, uh, and talk about that kind of murderer's row of musicians there at chess records and, and how those events are presented and the, the idea of music and the, the history makers, uh, there and who may or may not be known uh, today and their kind of role in that. And, and so this would probably just be a section, I think maybe in a, a screenwriting course or I'm not quite sure where I'd put it, but it, it would really all kind of come back to that I, ad, adaptation theory and historicity and how we have to be cautious of receiving our history from the movies uh, without any sort of filter to uh parse out what what's true what's not true and how it kind of reflects uh, uh on a modern day uh as a modern day parable of how we can grow or change or if it even does that because many times these uh biopics don't don't have that element and that's where i think they fail the most so that, that's where i'm at with this i think Fair enough, fair enough. I like that syllabus a lot, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What are you going to do with it, Dalton? Well, I think my class might actually fit well uh, as a module within Arthur's uh, because I, I'm definitely I'm not going necessarily down the same route, but I, there's some overlap in our approach to uh, examining history on film. Uh, the, the class, or again, module, which I, I think it might work better as a portion of a class and a, a full class, uh, but it is a uh, movie war. Uh, what are they good for, these movie wars? Uh, so we're just kind of questioning. Yeah, exactly. Are is is movie war good for anything? Is it like regular war, where it's always bad and always uh, uh, romanticizing itself a little bit too much? Uh, so I and I I definitely tried to uh, not explicitly uh, choose only war films uh, that that are explicitly dealing with race, uh, but I, I definitely wanted a selection of war films that appreciate the the role of uh, black and brown people in the U.S. military uh, and how that service has changed and how it hasn't really changed in some capacities. Uh, but I also want to look at the, especially the enlisted person in the, the arm, the U S armed forces as a sort of a, a racial and class equalizer, right? I think uh, not having been a veteran, I can't speak to this, but I think when you talk to veterans, part of the 
positive aspects they they look on uh, with their service is that sort of uh, America as it's uh, labeled on the tin sort of melting pot shit, right? Which isn't to say that there's definitely not uh, all sorts of bigotry going on within the U.S. military. Uh, but I, I think... Uh, at least at the enlisted person or non-commissioned officer level, uh, you, you definitely see a, a more sense of, uh, well, look, we're all, we all work for the same boss, <laughs> that sort of energy. Right. And I think I try, I try to capture some films that work with that. But as Arthur said, we need to interrogate what is true to film and what is true to real life. Uh, so I, I definitely want to work with uh, obviously uh, Red Tails and the film Flyboys, which deals with World War One uh, mm-hmm. fighter pilots. And I, the reason I wanted to get that film is uh, watching uh, this documentary on the Tuskegee Airmen uh, that uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. narrates, and I think it was uh, contemporary to the release of Red Tails, or maybe just a few years prior to. Uh, but it, those those airmen specifically reference those those World War One biplane pilots, and you know mention them as you know this generation of previous, uh, you know. Early, I was going to say Air Force, but again, we're still working. I don't even think they were the Army Air Corps in World War One. They were probably just a special designation of some sort. But uh, again, this this new generation of fighter pilots looking back uh, and and saying, "Wow, I, I want to be a pilot," and the the struggle that comes with that, right? And I, I think, as mentioned, we definitely need to look at those interviews with the the current living Tuskegee Airmen because. Uh, I think all of them have very realistic attitudes about the U.S. Uh, well, just the U.S. I was going to say U.S. military, but no, just the U.S. period. Uh, even looking back on their service, uh, they are a, a lot less patriotic than some of the uh, the characters we get in the film Red Tails. I, I, that's mm-hmm. the best way. I, and not that anybody in Red Tails is kind of portrayed as overly patriotic. I think the film gets uh, has more like Leslie M. Jr. is a character that speaks directly to this. Uh, but we, we have characters within Red Tails who are, are kind of speaking to the issues. But uh, that the documentary lets out a fun statistic, and I, by fun, I mean shitty. Uh, 20% of African Americans uh, polled in the 1940s uh, said it would be uh, just as bad living under Hitler. Uh, and uh, honestly, I. I wonder where they uh, what the I'd like to hear some more uh, about the the sample uh, for that read because twenty percent honestly seems low uh, for the forties. Uh, moving out of these these airplanes though and going on to the ground, I think really does start to change uh, the tone of these war movies because I do want to also look uh, at. Um, uh, Defy Bloods, the Spike Lee film from last year that is really great and also is dealing with a lot of these same issues uh, about service to a, a war machine that uh, is uh, oppressing uh, your your own communities back home. Uh, I then want to look at Mudbound, another film that not only deals with uh, the Tuskegee Airmen a tiny little bit, uh, they get referenced uh, within the text of that movie, but I think that's a film that deals with the aftermath of war in a way that's really useful, especially the the ways in which warfare can uh, uh, help heal some some racial traumas and, and smooth those lines over, but how getting back home might not necessarily make those things stick. Uh, again, that D. Reese film uh, we all love and have talked about on the show quite a few times, I, I think is really great for a class like this. Uh, I want to look at the Pacific, uh, the 2010 miniseries. I think it's a little bit better than uh, its counterpart, Band of Brothers, uh, in examining the traumas of war, uh, the prevalence of war crimes on both sides. Uh, I I think removing it from the European front and putting it in the Pacific theater makes the, the graying of morality a lot easier to do, right? When you, you have band of brothers ending at a death camp, it's kind of a a very clear moral of, to the story with Pacific, there's less certainty uh, and more 
just baggage, truly. Uh, and I think that's a that's a miniseries that's much more invested in trying to come home after war, uh, as is Mudbound. And I think that's why there'll be interesting pairings. I also want to look at Black Hawk Down and Hotel Rwanda, uh, both films dealing with U.S. foreign policy in Africa during the 90s. Uh, I think Black Hawk Down sort of is the proto-war on terror film. It does come out just before 9-11, I think. I think it's that summer right before, but it definitely feels in some ways like a post-9-11 film uh, in in sort of its portrayal of the the U.S. special forces as world police. Uh, And then again, Hotel Rwanda dealing directly with the shortcomings of uh, our foreign policy uh, in that era. Uh, finally, I, I think I want to look at the documentary film Restrepo. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I also did want to get to Glory. Uh, there's not a lot of pre-20th century war films that deal with the the uh, Black experience uh, as far as on the ground, uh, you know, boots in the trenches. There's not a lot of Sure, there are pr- probably a one or two minor black characters in the Patriot. I'm not thinking of, but again, it's it's slim pickings. Uh, but I, I think Glory is a a film with a lot of uh, to work with. It, not only just its great performances, I, I think it gives us a lot to do as far as uh, examining uh, the role of race in a Hollywood production. Right, Matthew Broderick is the person on the poster of that film. So I think, uh, despite its you know again great performances and uh, the text of the film doing a little bit more with it, the history of those. Soldiers, uh, I, I think we can get into that stuff. And then I do uh, the documentary film Restrepo uh, about um, I want to say the Marines, but gosh, it's been so long since I've seen it. Um, they might be uh, Army uh, guys, but uh, it's a, a documentary about conflict in uh, Afghanistan. I want to say it's from 2010, and it's just a, a very fly on the wall, no talking heads documentary uh, about being in the shit, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, and I think that mix of films gives us. Uh, enough runway to work with as far as teasing out the question of what is the function of a a movie about war? Uh, Can you make an anti-war film or as uh, some film critic who's very famous and whose name I should probably know has pointed out, uh, are all war movies inherently pro-war? I I think that is going to be the question we'll have to reckon with in this class. And again, I I think it works as a module within Arthur's class because I think the one valuable thing about military history, at least when it's done right, uh, is you are not looking, uh, again, uh, top down from a general's point of view. You look bottom up from uh, an enlisted person's point of view. Uh, to talk about the horrors of war if you really want to do something with them as opposed to, uh, I don't know, Midway or Tora Tora Tora, which while interesting in the context for who was where when, uh, I, I don't think those films do a great job of communicating that war sucks and is not good. Dustin, what do you want to do with Red Tails? How are you going to teach a movie like this? I think what I would do is I would talk about um, the African-American experience specifically in uh, war and, uh, and in war films. And so think about that historical imaginary that's being constructed by cinema. So the, a lot of this will tie to things that you and Arthur both are doing in your classes as well. Uh, the ways in which we choose to imagine and choose to reckon with uh, uh, social relationships uh, and, uh, you know, there's just the sort of uh, racial politics of those given moments, how we choose to represent uh, what's gone wrong, how we choose to represent things that are moving in the appropriate directions, but also the dynamics of the teams themselves and how does one go about telling the story uh, and writing blackness onto a page about uh, war waging and warfaring. And uh, that does begin with the first uh, one of the movies that you mentioned in your list, Dalton, which is Glory. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with, you know, again, the great performances 
of uh, well, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, oh, and others. You know, Andre Brower. Andre yeah, Brower, it's a, yeah. a similarly stacked cast as with yeah. Red Tails. And, uh, and, and I think better written characters uh, for that matter. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that being said, but how, do you, again, do you inscribe that? How do you give those senses of the, the, this is a team's movie? And, of course, we, we write and we watch lots and lots of team's movies all the time. All right, you've got your Ninja Turtle rule. You know who's the party guy, who's the broody guy, who's the leader guy, and who's the nerdy guy. Right? Um, that's what you you know. That's the, the general sort of archetypes that you go with. But what makes more satisfying uh, telling of those stories, narratively speaking, in which blackness is one of those ways in which I'm looking at you, Ghostbusters, um, that that can be inscribed, right? Uh, so how do you go about doing that when you've already got sort of one of your character traits evenly dispersed, right? And yeah, when what happens, I, I, I want to clarify what I think you're saying, because I think it's really interesting. When you're not using, well, here's your, your Jewish character from Brooklyn, here's your uh, Hispanic character from Texas, here's your black character from the South, right? Is that what you're right. talking about when you can't exactly. lean on? Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. A lot of uh, war films, especially about American warfare, lean on that, right? Uh, ethnicity as a character trait, uh, which is a pretty... Uh, problematic feature of a lot of these uh, team movies that, you, that you're talking about, as opposed to flushing out characters and giving them more personality than this is what they look and talk like. Right. And so that that's one of the first things that you'd want to think about that. And again, the context itself of being in a uniform, the very idea mm-hmm. that we are looking at a situation in which uniformity is one of those requirements. Mm. And so I, I think there's a real screenwriting and visual storytelling challenges being presented there by the very nature of that, which is military and uh, that it does tend to try to smooth out differences. And you talked a little bit about that enlisted man's experience, um, a man and woman's experience of, uh, Oh, thank you. Know, yeah. I did say enlisted men several times, didn't I? Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. Uh, but that, that sort of, you know, flattening of uh, the real melting pot kind of experience. And uh, that is a, an intentional piece of that. But that does not mean that those bits of history and baggage do not exist. You know, the goal of, you know, racial progressiveness is not colorblindness, but rather, you know, recognition to be seen as we are and as human beings. That's the goal there. And so the ways in which sometimes these films you know, cut against their own purposes by using that military context. And so beginning there uh, with that, uh, with that film to sort of problematize, begin to initially ask the questions and moving into red tails, which I think is an example of a real flattening of those characters uh, that, uh, that yes, indeed they are all African-Americans, but they are all, they are still barely sketched. And uh, why uh, a movie, and again, I would just simply ask the question in the class, why does glory work and why does this one not? Or, you know, I mean, and, and be willing to recognize that a student or others might say glory doesn't work either, or Red Tails works in some way that I'm not recognizing. But I think that's a good way to sort of begin a discussion mm-hmm. uh, about where we're going with that. And then lastly, I think I would conclude uh, with The Five Bloods, uh, Spike Lee's film from last year. Uh, which is, uh, again, a, a group of African-American men working together in the, our contemporary moment of political awareness. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a very sort of Trumpy character, uh, you know, uh, that's in that group of people, Delroy Lindo, 
I mean, is lights out in the yeah. Country. It's a ta- it is a towering performance. It's truly like a even without the the sort of weird award season we're walking into, I think he probably still could have very easily uh, cemented himself as a front runner in the race. Uh, yeah. In, in a year where everybody got to go to the theaters because it, it is that good of a performance. It, it is a, a performance too good for Netflix. It is a big screen performance, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. But again, we, we, are, we meet all of these different characters, right? And we're required to really sort of expand on them. And what Spike Lee is able to do is different than what some of these other directors and other screenwriters are able to do. And so, again, interrogating those questions of mm. experience, those questions of uniformity, those ways in which we militate against that. Uh, again, all the sort of martial language uh, sort of pops up when we start thinking about uh, these uh, impulses and this kind of writing and thinking about, you know, film as this kind of warfare. And, and then probably pull in a little bit of the French philosopher Paul Virilio uh, and his work of the director as general. And uh, his sort of anarchist Christian um, approach to uh, what uh, filmmaking could possibly be. And so that's where I would probably conclude it with some of that reading in that category as well. So there you go, dear listener. Uh, Your syllabus just got considerably longer. So I guess, I think, it's time to get down to business. Okay, two things. One, I absolutely want to hear more about this Christian anarchist Frenchie that you're talking about. But uh, before we enter that, um, we, we've talked a lot about sort of the way this film functions uh, as an old-fashioned war movie, sort of morally uh, black-and-white war film, uh, which, yeah, look, it is great to see people light up Nazis. It's especially great to see people who uh, Nazis uh, diminished uh, based on the the facts of their biography uh, to, to light those Nazis up, right? That shit just feels good. Yeah, uh, oh yeah. And that is sort of the, the weird thing about World War II movies uh, is as soon as you put them in the Mediterranean or European theater, uh, they become very morally clear <laughs> despite all of the, uh, the, the damn American bund and all that shit that was going on uh, over here in the 30s and 40s, right? You get to flatten out uh, global fascism in the early 20th century when you remind everybody that uh, uh, it, it was American boots uh, invading Western Europe. Well, of course, forgetting that our uh, Soviet friends were just throwing human beings into a meat thresher for, you know, what, six years? And winning the uh, war. And winning the war for, for everybody. That, yeah. But again, I, <laughs> that moral flattening that happens, I think, you know, it's it, whether it's this or something that people kind of glom onto as a, this is a good war movie like Dunkirk, which, you know, is, is a good war movie. I mean, I'm not trying to poo-poo that film necessarily, but it's also very not interested in dealing with even that film's even less interested in dealing with uh, the Nazis as bad guys. Right. It is. It's, it's, still it's, kind of, it's up its own ass for narrative structure, isn't it? I mean, bingo. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, that, that's the, the thing with Dunkirk. Exactly. The thing that I'm circling though, is I want to talk about uh, the five bloods and uh, Mudbound and why these two films that are mm. sort of specifically reckoning with get going home. And how, you know, as as, uh, we all learned as children from the Lord of the Rings, uh, you can never go home again after you see war. Uh, Home ceases to exist in sort of the context you're used to thinking about it. Uh, At least that is what the the, the storytellers who were also veterans would lead us to believe uh, throughout that long and storied history of veterans coming home and trying to put their experiences into fiction. Um, What, what, I don't know. That's all, I guess, all I want to bring up for this starting point is... What 
why is that so important? Why does it, why do those two films maybe in particular uh, do these things super well, or, you know, even more generally, like what are the traits of those films that, you know, more films could stand to have? I, I guess I just kind of want to start there. Well, I think what Mudbound does is a little bit of what sort of uh, hinted at, you know, the sort of still existent racism that even though uh, a, a, an African-American man may be an officer, he's not welcome in the officer's club. Uh, on duty in Italy, and that Mudbound, in the same way, this character who has served with distinction and with honor comes back home, and he is no longer an officer and a war hero. He is just another black man, and uh, and as such, that's how he ends up being treated. And of course, he he finds that that level of dignity and respect that he had been given uh, at the you know during his time of service to have that removed uh, when he leaves General Patton's uh, tank troop. And comes back into, uh, you know, again, whatever it is, Alabama, wherever Mudbound happens. It feels like Alabama. I think, I think it's Alabama. Yeah, it's definitely the Delta for sure. Yeah. yeah. But th- it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Uh, the, the point, though, is that he can't, he, he can't come home and be recognized. In a similar kind of way, uh, the, our African-American characters in uh, the Defy Bloods seem like they have twofold problem at problematization because yes indeed there is your honor and dignity that you received in fighting in the war uh in world war ii it's less dignified and honorable uh coming back from vietnam it's an unpopular war and- well and especially you're talking about a, a generation of uh people fighting a war that are very politically aware right the Chad- chadwick boseman character in that film sort of serves as their again their their commanding officer right their their uh role model on the ground but he is also a political role model to them right uh, as somebody who has revolutionary politics uh in a time when that was not an easy thing to do when that was a dangerous thing to do for most people especially uh black americans um where we happen to be recording this the weekend that Judas and the Black Messiah came out, and that's you know it's worth mentioning, I guess, if only to talk about uh, revolutionary '60s politics. But I, I think the, it's good. The you should watch yeah. Lister. That's all I want to say. Good, it's a very good film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a film that does deal with uh, the realities of America and. Uh, empire in ways that i think mudbound and the five bloods also do right like in much different ways of course but i I think both films that are reckoning with the the undeveloped promises of sort of that revolutionary time period uh of the late 60s uh and what that means for us today uh in similarly revolutionary moments uh absolutely um i want to make a little bit of a gear transition here because i want to talk about the transition from the uh the p40s to the uh p51s and <laughs> I, I really do no 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 i'm not gonna nerd out i'm on I like airplanes and that kind of stuff no 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 stay with me but um you know the one of the things about this is is peace through superior firepower is a consistent trope in cinematic retelling of uh warfare And it comes back to your question of are not all war movies in the end fundamentally pro-war movies? One of the things about cinema and one of the things about war is uh, that they that they share in common is their pursuit of more and more technology, uh, of development of technology and their their gadgety kind of obsessiveness. And and so one of the reasons why, uh, you know, warfare lends it so well. It lets itself so well to cinema is because in the same way that generals have an obsession with, again, attaining superior firepower, 
uh, so do filmmakers. Finding superior technological means by which to mechanically reproduce the image and tell the story in a way that achieves the effect that's desired. And so there is a way in which that obsession finds its way narratively in, again, sort of, again, being able to beat them out with, you know, the P-51s, you know, moving up from the P-40s. Of course, they're still fighting against the uh, the jet engine, right? The Germies have the jet engine, uh, and they have to fight that. But I guess the P-80 exists. I mean, that's but just the Tuskegee guys don't get to fly them at that time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, my point is that um, the technological, uh, again, nerd nerdistry <laughs> – that is important. I mean, think about your James Bond movies. Think, sure. You know, think about the way in which you see, uh, uh, you know, I, I can think about that stupid Benghazi movie that Michael Bay made. I mean, there, there's a real sort of strong, strong comparatively speaking, in terms of technology of yep. uh, those SEALs and those insurgents. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the director as dictator is a metaphor, you know, long utilized for good reason. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely a, an interesting conversation to have in light of, of Lucas's involvement here. A, a, yeah. a director or filmmaker noted for trying to constantly re-up his own visual, you know, technological uh, mastery with, you know, the, the, the re-releases and the special mm-hmm. editions of Star Wars. You know, this is a man who's constantly pushed himself to try to improve upon his own technological work. And so I think that's just kind of an interesting footnote there. Yeah, uh, this, with uh, Lucasfilm. Absolutely. This definitely feels like a film that exists in the wake of the Star Wars prequels because I don't know how much of this movie was shot on green screens, but it seems like a lot. Well, <laughs> and, yeah. And it's not poorly composited. I don't mean that as a dig against the movie. I think it actually does a really good job of weaving that sort of green screen landscape into its color palette, right? The, the sort of uh, unreality uh of the film is, and again, Dustin mentioned this earlier uh, in the episode, the sort of uh, the movie trick of this is uh, history as it feels. I think actually you, uh, maybe both of you have made points about this. I can't remember who exactly said it, but uh, just the, the idea that the, the unreal being more real. Right. And I, I think that, that technologically speaking, this film does a good job with that of using technology to uh, put you in a, uh, a less, uh, technologically advanced headspace, which is sort of an interesting conundrum, but again speaks to that that uh, uh, superior image quality uh, through uh, lens firepower or whatever. I was going to try to do a, a clever uh, analogy there. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a clear sympathy, it seems to be, with military, you know, again, progressing and developing stronger and stronger bombs, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever that looks like. But is there a corollary also that um, the the special effects film itself is an attempt toward pacification through superior firepower? Is that Defi- a, Is that a frame by which we should start thinking about special effects films? From times, uh, I'm thinking about Dogma '95, not just Dogma '95, but other gotcha. sort of vows okay. of chastity, where uh, I see where, where eschewing certain uh, parts of filmmaking uh, ability and to sort of strip down and pare down uh, what's available. You know, this sort of indie film uh, ethos of the '90s would be an example. of This as well, not just Dogma '95 in your in Europe, but that well, here's idea, the film. That I haven't seen. Polished. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. But just, yeah. I, go I ahead. think there's a film that maybe is 
it, it weirdly getting at what you're talking about. And I haven't seen it, but 1917 seems to be trying to do both of these things, right? It seems to be trying to use technology to create the appearance of a, a single take war film, which is uh, should be impossible for lots of obvious reasons, namely all the damn explosions that you have to do and then make sure people are safe enough away from them to not be murdered by the explosion. Correct. Uh, but again, this film trying to say, all right, well, let's put you on boots on the ground let's make this feel like a war video game but as a movie and let's use technology to sort of constrain how we tell the story and i again i've not seen the film i don't know how successful that is i've heard mixed reviews kind of all the way around on it but i think it maybe is while obviously not being a, a anywhere close to a dogma 95 film is still trying to say how do we make a war film that makes you feel like you're there and makes you question why you're why anybody would be there Right. Uh, I, again, I don't know how successfully that film does that. I don't know that it does, but is that sort of the the hypothetical war movie you're pitching is one that does not use technology, or are you just sort of talking about special effects? I'm talking about special general? effects in general because I'm thinking about gotcha. how they're okay. used. Because I mean, you think about your big special effects features; they yeah. are the ways in which that you they, they are films which tell the story of defeating what is sometimes a superior, sometimes an inferior. Um. Uh, sort of a antagonistic source, right? So I'm yeah. looking at your Independence Days, I'm looking at your Marvel movies, I'm looking at your Star Wars movies. They're all fundamentally, you know, your Harry Potter films still have something kind of fundamentally martial built to the core in terms of conflict. Gotcha, okay. And There's that this. through superior firepower, realizing that battle of good over evil, does it also become propaganda film for joining the forces mm. of superior firepower to pacify evil in the world? I mean, it certainly would feel that way, right? Uh, there, there was a joke going around uh, uh, Iranian Twitter uh, about uh, how could they uh, do their military do a commiserate strike against the U.S. after uh, we killed Khomeini because uh, all of our heroes are fictional. Uh, <laughs> yeah, funny tweet. It was a good tweet, uh, but a very point well made. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know if this was Arthur. I want to see what Arthur had to say. I'm curious if it was uh, just to talk about the relationship between uh, the MCU and the U.S. Department of Defense uh, and sort of that weird filmmaking propaganda relationship. That's not where I was going to go, but I mean, well, it's certainly I, that's a point, really right? all I, that's all I have to say about it. Yeah. It's sort yeah. of well-documented at this point. Yeah. You know, that's the thing you have to talk about. And anytime we look at a war movie is that there is that involvement from the government to uh, sign off on it, uh, which is, an, I, I was really kind of going back to Dustin's point, And I was thinking a lot because, you know, he's mentioned this independent movement and dogma, uh, 95 and and uh, the, the big spectacle commercial film and i was just kind of thinking about that kind of dialectical approach between uh you know the artist and, and making the the big budgets who you know directors coming in to do practical stuff i think of george miller and mad max fury road mm. or, or even justin lynn on star trek beyond which we talked about a few months ago uh that idea of where using you know practical sets inside of these big budget uh studio films I, I was kind of in my mind going down a different rabbit hole looking thinking about that kind of i wonder if there's like a kind of competition there you know like you know you got your your michael bays or john favreau's who are who are heavily cgi type of guys versus you know these other directors who are trying to heavily invoke uh, practical effects to uh show a command of artistry i think within this big budget spectacle thing but that was kind of a side tangent compared to where, where dustin was going with it i think yeah, but I think it's it's related, right? Because either way you look at it, either somebody's trying to hone the uh, 
illusion of digital effects or trying to hone a sort of old-fashioned form of in-camera practical effects. And in either case, uh, you are using uh, really cool visuals to uh, make people feel like uh, good things happen in the world, which is not always necessarily the case, unfortunately. Right. Um, so point well made, Dustin, and I think one that maybe will shift us to, I, I did think a lot, this film in the character of uh, Lightning, uh, the, the David Oyelowo character who uh, can't stop loving killing Nazis, uh, which does, of course, eventually uh, cost him his life. Um, this sort of uh, idea that, God, literally every war movie ever made probably deals with that uh, uh, killing in war feels good and everybody feels weird about it. Uh, and some people just kind of get fundamentally changed for the worse because of that. Um, I assume this French philosopher you referenced has some thoughts on uh, this aspect of warfare. I would assume so. I don't know for sure on that particular gotcha. topic, but yeah, I think j- definitely check out Paul Virilio anyway. So, so what's gonna... Virilio? I guess what what the I was just curious when you referenced Virilio, like what does he have to say that's useful for this discussion about war cinema? Well, I mean, just this, his general analysis that filmmaking as a process is a martial process, that it is gotcha. uh, okay. propagandistic. So it does sort of fall into sort of apparatus theory and some things you might find out of Althusser, but also from a strongly anarchist point of view as well, and a strongly Christian point of view. Uh, he was an architect before he was a theorist uh, and designed several churches in France as huh. an architect. Yeah, um, because the church would only employ, you know, a good faithful Catholic, and Virilio was that as well as the other things, uh, which is kind of fun. So, yeah, as, interesting guy. As a character, he's just a neat person in, you know, theoretical history. It is an interesting question of uh, the 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 project of movies as art, though, right? Uh, when do they uh, end up becoming too big for their own good and start pushing an agenda, uh, sometimes without even uh, really meaning to? Right. Uh, especially in you know our American context, where uh, our two big businesses are the pictures and the and the wars. <laughs> when when you get down to it, at the end of the day, those sort of are our biggest exports, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, now I have a last question. We're starting to run kind of close on time, but we got to hit something of the big E on the I chart here. Sure. Um, this movie does not seem to deal with racism, which seems to be a movie about those things. Yeah. I guess it's just not that movie, right? It is. Which this is, is okay. the movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Though it is sort of troubling. A little. I, bit. I think. It, I think it goes back to that kind of. I don't. Did Disney release this? I, I know Disney is, this a Fox, is just Fox, before Disney. Fox released this, right? Yeah, correct. Yes, but it, it really does feel like that kind of late nineties, early aughts. Remember the Titans? Yeah. race movie, right? Where yeah. racism occurs. Hey, you can't drink in the the whites only officers club, uh, or you know, back in Washington, that you know those those boys out there aren't gonna aren't getting the job done. Well, you're not giving them the opportunities. But uh, it, it does really feel like it's that shallow paint-by-numbers race movie where it's kind of a thing, but it's also just another in a string of like everyday conflicts like, oh, totally. we're running low on toilet paper and, uh, and, and Easy's hitting the bottle too hard. Uh, Which oh, is also sort- those officers don't let me go in the club. Like it, it, it doesn't yeah. have a severity to it. There's a truth to that, though, right? It, it simultaneously could be a good a, a good trait for the film to have, right? Is this sort of everyday 
uh, racism that occurs as as frequently as you know needing more toilet paper, as you said, or or, or yeah, or yeah. our our commanding officer hitting the bottle again. I, like, I guess it, I should. I don't want to downplay that. I mean, I, I understand racism is an everyday thing, but you're but, right though. But it is not, sort of unremarkable. It feels like there's not a weight to it here. Yeah, especially because we have, and I, I think I don't not that this movie needs more white dudes having screen time, but like the no. only antagonist right is cranston uh yeah kind of sort of grumpy hands on his hips racist like not even uh probably as gross as the real colonel uh william mortimus was uh, a guy that definitely did not uh want black pilots in his army air corps uh, by all accounts but again lee turgeson is kind of an uncomplicated ally which i don't know feels doesn't i don't know that that feels super true to 1942 i'm sure he maybe but again, it's I, I get totally what you're talking about, Arthur. Is it is it exists as much as maybe it needs to in the film. But again, what's the point of making a war movie like that, right? Like it is existing in a genre that doesn't exist anymore, which is the family friendly war movie, which is sort of a bygone product of a uh, of old Hollywood, right? Like it's just not a, a, the the last one of those they tried to make was the Green Berets during Vietnam, and everybody decided, oh, that's a dipshit yeah like let's not do that anymore and that again we said this movie feels 20 years too late but truly it feels about 40 to 50 years too late like this movie should have been a late 60s early 70s production uh it would have made a shitload of money everybody would have loved it uh and it would have uh well this is gonna sound sort of like a backhanded compliment Uh, it would have uh made sense for this movie to come out during the vietnam war Right, uh, because that's sort of how war movies are. Every American war film is sort of about the current war, yeah. uh, regardless of what war it is uh, depicting on screen, if that makes sense. And uh, if this film is about the war on terror, uh, it uh, well, it's not, I guess. <laughs> it isn't, it, because this film is so out of time. It doesn't feel like it is specific to 2012. It feels like it's specific to... Uh, a non mid 1940s that never really existed ever. Right. Yeah. I want to go back to, to something. It kind of circles back to Dalton's first point about the kind of the manner in which the Nazis are sort of a railroaded threat here. Like they are kind of a big bad, but again, it's something else not really remarked upon. Uh, and this movie to me, structurally, it feels like a sports movie in almost every way. I, I think the beats that it hits, and and the way the the narrative plays out, I, I think it parallels a, a lot of those. You know, remember the Titans? You know, kind of the prime example. I keep going back. The moment to. when the Mighty Ducks get the new uniform. Yep, right? yep, yeah. exactly. Mister Ducksworth buys them that that brand new gear. That's what it feels like. And even the the the, the competition, it's almost a competition between them and Germany in the air. It, it's like this like friendly rivalry of like who's going to outfly who uh, until uh, Oyelowo gets blasted to the chest. Uh, but there's almost like that kind of friendly rivalry going on between the, the ducks and Iceland that occurs. I mean, that's what this feels like. Um, it feels like an underdog story playing out the, the plucky young pilots uh, trying to prove, prove the man wrong. Uh, and, and they, they get to, they get their first win and they get some new gear uh, and they keep their winning going. And then the, the, the pilots that they're protecting finally acknowledge them. It's like the, when the town, finally acknowledges that the team is good and that they are going to root for them, even if they're black. Like yeah, Structurally, I mean, it feels like a sports movie. 
the officers, right? The white officers or the, yeah. the bomber pilots sort of exist right. in that role yeah. of the te- the team from out of town that comes to like respect them. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. It does have that again. I think uh, Remember the Titans is a, a really great reference point for a, a, a film that feels very weirdly similar to this film uh, in ways that are kind of curious. Uh, in ways that sort of highlight the the tonal mismatch going on between the triumphant based on a true story uh, energy and the historical realities of a time and a place. And those things don't necessarily fit together very well uh, in any film. That's that, that's not really a dig on Red Tails specifically. It is sort of a general like, I don't know that these tones can fit together in a, yeah. a post forever war era. Yeah, and I, I think this kind of comes back to uh, the big issue I think a lot of us are having with this movie, and, and it's almost, a, you know, the template of this film that exists. It's just such a general storytelling. Stru- you know, this is Save the Cat 101 in, in a lot of ways, sure. and I think that's where a lot of the shortcomings are, are, are stemming from. So that, that's just what I wanted to come back to. I guess I want to maybe end on, I know we, we were running a little long now, but uh, Tristan Wilds, who plays Ray Gunn slash Junior, um, uh, also uh, really great as Michael in the last two seasons of The Wire. Uh, his subplot, his like Great Escape subplot. Oh man, that is William so... Holden's Starlock 17 subplot. I want that whole movie. Yeah. I, right? That's the much more, in- like that movie sounds so cool. Like I want to know more about that story. But also, it's like it just the movie does not have room for that subplot, and it's like it's great. I know the movie does not want to kill Raygun, and I'm glad it doesn't. Like that would yeah. suck. The movie didn't want to kill Deke. Like the movie like puts Deke through a lot without killing him. It, I think it's kind of deliberate that the film doesn't kill any named named characters except for Lightning. Um, that feels like a very specific and deliberate choice that kind of speaks back to this being a film about overcoming adversity more than it is a film about war. And yet Lightning dies for committing the sin of being too black as a pilot. I'm just saying. It's just. Uh, How do you mean? Uh, that, 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 that sort of racist general attitude about being too show-offy, too... Uh, what's the word mm, I'm looking for? Yeah, you're talking about a real, Hubris. like... Yeah, a, a, a gross uh, basketball announcers in, in the seventies talking about yeah. fundamentals. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think they're trying to do a war as a drug type subplot with him with lightning, right? But does uh, it the, come off? Is my question. No, it doesn't really work. Unfortunately, it is sort of a missed opportunity uh, within a film that's got a lot of missed opportunities. Unfortunately, I think. Yeah. Well, all right, guys. I think we need to render a verdict here with this movie. I don't think we'll be too surprised to hear what it is, but let's go ahead and hear it said out loud for the purposes of uh, continuity with the show. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash for Red Tails? Um, yeah, I'm going to trash this one. Just, I feel bad. I, you know, this is one I, I really did hope to like, and I just I can't in, in good conscience uh, uh, um, uh, recommend this one. So, trash. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? I am going to very lightly shelf this one in, in sort of a, hey, it's always streaming capacity, right? And again, the, it's streaming on Disney Plus because of that LucasArts acquisition. And over on there, it comes with that uh, 90 minute, I think it's maybe just over 90 minutes, uh, Tuskegee Airmen documentary that I, I think is really the watch that you need. I, I think it gets into these the real stories in a way that's much more useful uh, just through a lot of good interviews with uh, surviving pilots uh, with uh, just being realistic about the time about data from that period of history that is super useful in 
highlighting the realities of this story uh, and, and the true stories of how frustrating it was to be at the Tuskegee Institute learning to fly. Uh, I, I think uh, the movie doesn't, uh, neither movie, uh, the documentary or Red Tails bothers to remind uh, remind us that uh, it's called, they're called the Tuskegee Airmen for the same reason that, that one really bad thing is called the Tuskegee Sisyphilis Experiment. Happened at the same place, basically. Uh, you know, I mean, same city anyway. I don't think they were actually at the same university, although I, I could be wrong about that. Um, I should have done more homework for this episode, but hey, it's it's really cold this week. Uh, that just makes everything shut down in a state like this. When you're not from the north, being cold just shuts everything down. Anyway, I'm lightly shelving it. I don't know. I, I like I like it okay. You know, I, I'll probably I could see myself watching this again someday because it is a pretty easy watch. Uh, and again, I think I might watch that documentary again. Um, I have about 15 minutes left of it uh, to go, and I definitely want to finish it so yeah it's a, it's streaming it's that kind of a shelfer dustin this is going in the trash for you too i assume yeah it is although i love planes i mean you know i'm obsessed with that you know a bit of technology as, as well i just love air you know aviation and air warfare I, I just find it really really fascinating but um there are just other movies i'd rather be watching uh than this although i'm glad that uh, we watched the movie i want to say this for sure i've made a commitment i don't i'm not doing like the 52 women filmmakers in a year kind of commitment this year but i'm committing that this year will definitely be my blackest year ever in uh cinema and uh so that's i seems like an appropriate goal for 2021 and so for that reason i'm glad of having watched this movie but i don't know that i'd return to it um, I def I definitely wish this had been a big hit, if only so we could get you know more films from uh, from the director because uh, yeah you know I looked at you know what Anthony Hemingway's done over on TV and it's all like oh I like this show or oh I've heard this show's really good and oh I remember this episode like it's all stuff like that I mean he directed a ton of Wire episodes he worked on it for basically the show's whole run yeah oh yeah the show's I love whole the run. Wire. Yeah, well, and again, it explains why you know all of the the crossover actors, right? Like, it definitely feels like a a project that sort of was coming to fruition uh, during that film's production, or at the very least, you know, as a director, probably was talking with uh, those cast members that ended up in the film, right? I mean, you got Andre Royo, uh, Method Man, uh, Tristan Wilde, who mentioned Michael B. Jordan, yeah, like four right there, and, and again, this is four of the. I don't know. I look, I like Method Man as an actor a lot. Um, I do too. I think he's great. He's always, he's always good. I have never seen him not be good as an actor. You know, he's not, he's usually being asked to play kind of similar roles, but he's always fun. Um, and again, I think the four actors that come over from the wire with uh, Hemingway, like it, there is a camaraderie there that feels true to the, the sort of military service aspect of the film. Um I don't know. Yeah, I, I I wish more people got to make more movies. You know, that is sort of the the problem about making a Hollywood movie about racism. Yeah, for sure. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on this. Um, Dalton, say the words about the social media, please. Yeah, if you got big thoughts about Red Tails, or yeah, like uh, Dustin hypothetically theorized, if you want to tell uh, tell him why Glory doesn't work in addition to this not working, or why this one works, it's good trash genre cast at gmail.com for that long form feedback. Always very interested what, what you have to say, listener. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, not that I could imagine you wanting to be on that website. Who would? Uh, but it's at... <laughs> 
at good underscore trash if you are on Twitter and want to find us. Uh, you can follow us there to keep track uh, of what's going on with this show, the genre cast, but also the other shows that are part of the Good Trash Media Network. Uh, everything Good Trash at good underscore trash. Uh, Randy Hare is uh, who I was trying to think of last week. Uh, that was just on the wheel of Randy. Uh, again, the uh, the vocalist for uh, Chat Pile, a great band here out of uh, our, our home area where we record from. Uh, so go go check that out to hear him talking about Randy Newman with uh, our good buddy Dan Wade. Uh, jump on over to the podcast, The Praise Down. I think I mentioned last week, but Susanna Wade, uh, Dan's wife, uh, was just over there uh, talking about her time as a Methodist minister, uh, talking about uh, her uh, surviving a brain tumor. Uh, it was a great episode of The Praise Down, great interview, great playlist that uh, Suzanne shared with uh, our good buddies, Heath and Alex. Uh, yeah, at The Praise Down on Twitter, if you want to follow them, they've got their own one. Um, I think Wheel of Randy does too, at Wheel of Randy. Uh, but if you go over to at the Praise Down, you can uh, check out their pinned tweet, which is a uh, invite to their Discord server. Come hang out. We're playing video games, we're watching movies, we're talking about stuff, supporting each other, yada, yada, yada. It's good times had by all. Uh, that's how you can stay part of this cinema doing conversation. Um, I think that, oh, if you want to go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, you can give us money if you want to. Um, it's cool if you don't. Uh, it's cool if you do. You know, that's how it goes. If you do give us money, there's bonus stuff like uh, Dustin and Arthur and I uh, playing a tabletop game together, as I mentioned earlier. We'll also send you a Blu-ray quarterly or is it yearly. Arthur has that Blu-ray thing work out uh, quarterly quarterly. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. Tell us about your movie tastes. We'll send you a curated pick. Uh, and I don't know. We're, we're talking about uh, a quote unquote issues movie this week. Uh, we do this sometimes. Give money to somebody else. We don't need your money as much as other people probably. Uh if you're a, a local base listener, you can always give to the Oklahoma City BLM chapter. Um, that's a good place to give money. Uh, there's also plenty of uh, bail fund groups uh, locally and in the region. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we don't need your money. It's very cold outside in half the country right now. There's lots of places that could use your cash to buy people socks uh, and, and other services. Um, think about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, be on the internet less. And when you are, try to, you know, not ruin your day. Uh, Arthur, that's social media corner. Is it time to tell people what happens next? Yeah. So first, stay on the lookout uh, over with the Cinematropolis. Dalton and I are going to be making an appearance on the Cinematic Schematic hosted oh, yeah. by uh, Caleb Masters. Uh, he had us on to talk about movies that got us through the pandemic. Uh, Pops, unfortunately, wasn't able to make it because timing was poor and he was moving. Um, yes. But uh, Dalton and I had some good fun catching up with Caleb, who uh, longtime listeners know used to uh, co-host and help us manage this show and Good Trash Media. Uh, so uh, just be on the lookout for that. We'll definitely be sharing that in our feed uh, as well. Uh, and next week, uh, next week, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I kept alluding to sports movies. Maybe I had that on the mind. I'm not sure. But uh, next week, we're going to hit the pitch uh, and, and we're going to take a look at uh, a little early aughts uh, film uh, called uh, Bend It Like Beckham. All right, some soccer in the house. Oh, I'm excited. Bit of, bit of footy. Bit of footy, isn't it? Yeah, bit of footy, isn't it? Uh, Dustin's allowed to say football. I'm not, you know, Dustin actually like follows uh, Premier League, right? Is bit, that still yeah. a thing you do? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to call it soccer. I refuse to call it football, but that's because I uh, am insisting on being an idiot. I call it soccer because I live in America. And that is no, that's here. fair. I, yeah. <laughs> that is true. I speak a particular dialect, and that's the appropriate <laughs> word. 
in the salad. <laughs> do do uh, they roast? Uh, I don't know uh, much about the uh, the Premier League forums. Do they uh, do they roast you for uh, calling it soccer over there? Uh, they they will if you're writing it because they don't know you're an American. Sure, if you're an American and you say it, they're going to let it slide. Is that how it works? Yeah, basically. Oh, that's what you're supposed to say because you you have a different <laughs> word for that because you call okay. a different you call they call the wrong game football. Uh, uh, Dustin, who's who do you? Who do you like right now? Who's 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 good in the uh, the or, or is Europe wisely not playing uh, soccer right no, now? They, they've had pandemic restrictions down, and I've been really excited to watch uh, just how well Liverpool and uh, Manchester United, my favorite team, are doing. And they're running pretty you, neck and neck right now, and that's pretty exciting. So. You would be a Manchester fan. I, what little I know about soccer is that you would be a Manchester United fan. Yeah, they're like the Yankees. I mean, they're just always on TV, so it's easiest to follow. I mean, that does make a lot of sense. Well, all right. Yeah, more soccer hot takes to come, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. I'll probably, I mean, I like David Beckham, so there is that. But uh, we'll get to I like that his wife next week. I do too. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> we'll Let's keep go watching. home. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>